here at home there's lots to talk about. I want mm. to start off with prescribed asset requirements. And the reason mm. for that is that when um, Donald Presley uh, wrote his piece for us on Business Premium last week, it just flew. There was so much interest in prescribed asset requirements. He had a look at various parts of the uh, debate. Mark Schussler and Ian Cruikshank saying it's definitely going to happen. Uh, J.P. Luntman and Iraj Abedian saying no way that the government would make such a misstep as to introduce prescribed asset requirements so that they can bail out the state-owned enterprises. What side of the fence are you on, Dad? I, you know what? I lived through it. I've, uh, when I first started on the market, there were prescribed investments during those times. and uh, But I think market, the structure of markets was slightly different. Um, the strange thing, Alec, if we look at the South African market at the moment, um, I think bonds holds up very high. In other words, because there's very lack, there's a lack of opportunity uh, in our local market. I'm not talking about our offshore listed bonds is attracting a lot of attention from a lot of people. Um, my worry is when it becomes prescribed and when you're forced to do it. When you force people to do it, they then tend to look elsewhere. So, in principle, I don't, um, you know, I don't uh, subscribe to it. We have just just a point of um, uh, not order. Just to, um, regulation twenty eight is introduced in order for pension funds to uh, subscribe to certain um, asset allocation. In other words, in a prescribed asset, which is a pension fund, you can't put more than seventy five percent in equity. Therefore, you're forced to put twenty five percent in a combination of either um, bonds, cash property alternative uh, funds, you know, there's certain within that. So to an extent, there's already prescribed requirements within the South African uh, investment industry. You know, you can only put 30% offshore, but if you go into equities, that comes out of your equity allocation or whichever allocation you want. So to an extent, there are there is some control. It's whether you now start interfering with the balance of uh, that 25%, um, in other words, make more into prescribed assets. Remember when, when, when I spoke, I think it was almost 25% had to go into government funds many, many years David, ago. David, I'll tell you, there yeah. was 53% that had to go is, into government stock. When is that I was what a it was? Yeah, so, so uh, is that what it was? Wow. No, so mm. it could conceivably start going back there. But what's, what's the big deal if government forces pension funds to invest in government bonds? There will be those who say it's part of nation building. Uh, it is part of nation building. In other words, uh, you're asking, you know, the people who are running pension funds, and I am a great believer that pension funds are there for the pensioners and therefore it's uh, untouchable. You shouldn't be messing around with people's pensions. Um, it shouldn't go into government funds. And the worry is that the government at the moment um, hasn't exactly covered themselves in glory, and therefore there is a fear of what they will do with it. So I'm, I'm from that point of view, I'm very nervous, uh, you know, whether it can be. I can't make a strong argument. You know, in other words, um, to be fair, I haven't got a really strong anti, uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-argument, but I just feel that, um, you know, one shouldn't interfere with, with where pension funds or where you put money on behalf of pensioners and for government to now start digging into that pot, I think just puts me off, you know, completely. Yeah, David, I, 
I don't when, know where you stand. Goes, I'm, not... I, I'm, I'm very much on your side. Well, I'm on the uh, side that government should just uh, butt out. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an awful allocator of resources. Mm, and when exactly. it starts to, to mm. prescribe, because that's mm. what this is, that mm. uh, pension uh, or retirement funds get put into uh, its area where its mm. wastage is, uh, is legend. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, uh, not good. So uh, I'm, no. I'm on the I'm side that says, come on, Cyril, don't. Don't you don't yeah, be stupid yeah. on this one. But it, it's, there's something else that's going on at the moment, and I'm not sure if you read the uh, Tamar Khan's excellent piece in Business Day this morning, where the, yeah. the state sector on medical aid are facing medical health claims mm. through incompetence of over 100 and, uh, billion uh, rand. So that's like uh, another uh, 5 percentage points, or sorry, 4 percentage points on VAT. And now these same people want to <laughs> get rid of the, the, the part of the economy that is working well, yeah. and uh, in other words, private health care, and make it all I national know. health. Can you imagine the, the cost to the fiscus of this kind of incompetence if it was a blanket approach? Surely to goodness, somewhere the, 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 the bells have to go off. Alec, I heard the story, and uh, I heard this some time ago. I mean, this is not a new story, the fact that it's been featured in Business Day. And I heard it through a, a client of mine, um, uh, a doctor who works for government hospitals, and um, they wanted to get rid of her because they wanted to close down the department because there have been so many claims of uh, negligence in that area. In other words, the way to combat it is not to make people more efficient, but just rather let's start closing down departments. So in various departments, maybe where they were understaffed and where these were occurring, they just wanted to close down. And I, I, I don't know if it comes across as rather ironic or, or, or rather sad that, okay, you know, that we've had so many claims, therefore let's close down these kind of uh, departments where they're professors and that. It's it's huge, and and I think they're suffering as a result. But it's it's nothing more a reflection of huge inefficiencies in them in government control of uh, of health. People are dying as a result of yeah. this. Uh, would you go to the Joburg Gen? I mean, honestly, no. And the problem is that those doctors that are there, you know, uh, they want to get rid of those that are competent simply because of the huge amount of claim but it's serious i don't know whether it's ever i don't know whether these claims are ever met and i don't know whether uh, these ever go to court and uh, i don't know what the state of um, you know the legal proceedings are and and whether people are actually being fulfilled with these claims but these are the kind of claims made against government well, if, it's it's a huge area i mean it's huge Heaven help us if NHR uh -huh. comes in, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. But surely yeah. now, in my head, I'm saying, hang on, Discovery are a national asset. Mm. Discovery are, are, have, have run an incredibly good uh, business here, so good that they're going in other parts of the world. Their share price has been under pressure down about a quarter in the past year because of the threat of national health insurance yeah. being being just foisted onto the South African population. Surely, if sanity prevails, uh, Discovery's discount that we're seeing now uh, will, will, will disappear. <laughs> sure, it should narrow. I mean, it's, uh, um, one should hand over 
Look, if we're going to go the Eskom route and we're really going to try and address these issues, I think health is a, is a very, very important subject. And I would rather leave it to the professionals. You know, we're going back to the prescribed asset argument. Don't give the money to the poor allocators of uh, wealth. In other words, give it to the good allocators. Give it to Adrian Gore. Give it to the people who can. Or well, they, they don't run hospitals. They run medical aids. But give it to the kind of people who have been running um, private health. And uh, I, I, I don't want to – you know, I stand to be criticized. But, I mean, if you do go to uh, NetCare, if you do go to Life Healthcare, if you do go to MediClinic, um, they're certainly uh, way above the way that they run hospitals or uh, – far, far above the levels that the National Health are running at. Rather let them do it or rather let them appoint people who can run it, put it under their control. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, Eric, we've had the best, we've created the best doctors in the world. If you go to Boston today or you go anywhere in the world, you'll find that there are people with South African accents who are running the uh, areas. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I happen to go to Boston quite often. I, was, I go to New York and Boston. And it's incredible to see how well South African doctors have done there. So we've, we've got a history of, um, you know, we, we've got a history of producing very good medical men. We can get that back. National Health in the UK is mm. chock full with South African mm. doctors. In fact, when you walk down the streets in the UK, you will see a dentist's uh, funder funder this and funder that. It's just full of South Africans. But just to close off with poor capital allocators, yeah. what about Pumalela? You get to oh, the God. AGM at Pumalela, 66% yeah. of shareholders yeah. Yeah. voted against allowing the, sh the directors to <laughs> issue shares for cash or to buy back their or uh, to, to, to control the shares. 21% uh, stopped them, uh, uh, voted against the remuneration committee. I mean, this is a 49.8%, uh, virtually half, said you are not allowed to buy back your shares because we think you're such poor capital allocators. Uh, you what said is it. happening there? Exactly that. I think that there's a lot of anger. You know, Alec, I, I've only followed the share because of you. I mean, I always used to watch it very carefully, and it was a super little company. And if you look at it... If you look at it over the last couple of years, I think at one stage it was probably had a market cap of, I don't know, $2.5 billion, maybe slightly more. I looked at the market cap today. It's $160 million. So they've lost a lot of value. And, that's, um, and, and I think it's the anger that shareholders are expressing because of the way that they have uh, lost money that they're not allowing um, them to buy back shares. I think it's more an anger vote then a common sense vote saying, no, you're not going to do it. If you're going to do these things, you're going to do it with our permission, not with your permission, you know, not, with, not, not uh, without our, uh, our authority. David Chibero is the Deputy Chairman of Sassfin Securities. We're going to be talking more about shareholder activism, and my goodness, wasn't that active shareholders at Pumalela at the annual general meeting? We're talking more about that towards the end of the program today. So here's Chris Logan joining us uh, after a trip up country from Cape Town to Tongat for the annual general meeting on Friday. Were you in the room? No, no. Actually, I just dialed in, Alec. And, and you were quite impressed with the way that things developed, including a, a former colleague of mine, Louis Fonziano, who seems to be getting some pretty hot potatoes uh, to look after, including chairmanship here of Tongat. Yes, no, I was very impressed. I, I thought it was an outstanding AGM. Um, 
you know, I participated in the previous one, 2018, the, which was the last one. There was a long gap. It was outstanding from a number of aspects. The way they handled the meeting, the, the way they answered questions. It, it's clearly a dramatically revitalized company um, in numerous regards. Um, if you if you just start off on the governance, the caliber of the board, and then the operational progress they're making, which they touched on towards the end of the AGM, you know, there's a lot happening. Unfortunately, of course, we've still got, you know, the 11 billion restatement, which wiped out all their equity and something like an 11 billion debt load. But it, it's night and day compared to what it used to be. Hmm. Chris, you'll remember, before we go more in more depth of Tonga, I just want to close off the conversation I was having with David Shapiro. You'll remember the days of prescribed asset requirements. As a, yes. as a money manager back then, and as a, as a young journalist, I remember them being at 53% that uh, asset managers had to invest into government stock. How much of a drain was it on performance, having those requirements in, in uh, uh, well, having them prescribed? Well, yes, it was always a big constraint. I mean, it's going back a long time. Um, and, you know, you, you, it's always hard to know how big a constraint it's going to be because, you know, in the end of the day, it's going to pan out how well or badly government stock does. So you could sketch out a scenario, you know, where you just about lose all your money in prescribed assets if you if you get into a hyperinflationary situation, you know, which sometimes happens in badly managed economies. So so you just shouldn't be exposed to that risk. And there's another aspect which you know very few people have picked up on except first round. Um, South Africa is one of the last countries you should even contemplate prescribed assets because the average pensioner only gets something like 17% of what he was getting in his salary. So there's a very low what they call a coverage ratio, and First Rand did some excellent work on this. So even people fortunate enough to, to get pensions in this country from their previous employer are getting such a small pension to then go and burden the whole system with prescribed assets and realize we've got a government which has shown itself to be, quite frankly, incompetent in managing assets. Um, you, you know, I'm, it's just ridiculous that people are, you know, giving this any possible support. It, it, yeah, well, the good news is that uh, as as Donald Presley did such an excellent piece for Biz News uh, Premium last week, the good news is that at least J.P. Lundman and Iraj Abedian, two very highly regarded economists, say it's it's never going to happen. Uh, there's no way yes. that the administration under Cyril Ramaphosa would be that dumb to bring in prescribed assets at with such a poor track record on asset allocation. But it doesn't just happen in public sector, as we were discussing um, a little while before on Tonga. The, the allocation of assets there were just appalling in the past. Uh, but what I did find interesting from the AGM um, that, that you participated in uh, is that you do feel that the new team there are doing a lot of right things. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether it's the governance, whether it's the processes, whether it's the way they're running the business, you know, um, so they're driving to be a, the lowest cost producer in sugar. Now, that's a key thing, you know, because obviously it's a terrible commodity. But if you can be lowest cost producer, you know, that's a very good thing. It's um, They're not prepared to entertain cost subsidization. By that they mean, you know, if sugar has a bad year, they dip into land sales to, you know, um, butter up the results. Each division's got to stand on its own. Um, Gavin ended by saying the actual cash flow for sugar now, it's some of the best it's been in recent years. So they already, you know, seem to be dramatic green shoots. So, it's very impressive, you know, against this background of all the trauma they've had to go through. It's, it's actually quite remarkable. But the problem there, surely, is that they're working for the banks at the moment, just having to repay interest. That's, of course, that is a huge problem. You know, um, they are working for the banks. I think they've, they've said they need the $4 billion capital raise. But, you know, being able to report all these progressive steps and improvements will at least put them in a far better position to service that debt firstly and, and raise capital. Um, you know, the one thing Louis did mention a couple of times, this is a 127-year-old business, which is very important, uh, you know, certainly in KwaZulu-Natal. And, yeah, so it's it's a tricky situation, but... They seem to be doing a wonderful job. Chris, what about the uh, statement from the chairman, from von Ziener, that he has reported uh, previous management to the National Prosecuting Authority? Do you think that's likely to go anywhere? Well, both he said that, said that and the CEO. So they wanting to hold everyone responsible. Um, and they seem to be doing all in their power to. Where that's going to go with the NPA, you know, I'm not sure. Because as we know, the NPA was, you know, basically wiped out of all schools. So I don't know. I guess what we, we could have asked them is, you know, but I didn't want to belabor the point, is where they're going with their civil litigation, because that is in their own hands, the NPA isn't in their own hands. But, yeah, they, they went out their way to say they're going to hold everyone to accounts. They what about cooperate. Um, and Deloitte, the auditors? Well, it, it was very interesting. So he said in no certain terms, neither the external auditors, being Deloitte's, or the internal auditors, who I think are KPMG, are off the hook. They, they're investigating all of that. So, yeah, look... They are trying to balance it without, you know, doing all these damn investigations, which you can imagine are quite a drain on the, on the organization, without, you know, draining from their operational focus. So there are legal and regulatory committees which they've set up. But it, it, I, I, I certainly thought they were doing everything in their power to, you know, bring these matters to conclusion. Chris, uh, uh, just to close off with a key point here, though, and, and you've made it in numerous occasions in, in, in these interviews that we've had, 
in the past, Tongart took money from its property sales, in other words, sold the crown jewels and pumped that into sugar, which hasn't worked out. Is there any commitment from this new management team and this board that they'll at least look after the land that they still own on the KwaZulu-Natal North Coast? Yes, no, there was quite a strong commitment. So they're putting a lot more oversight in those processes and they've acknowledged that that was wrong. You know, they should at least be, they, they should at least get an annuity type income from any property deals they do. So they acknowledge, and they also acknowledged all the problems started on these property sales. That's where all the misstatements and the regular dealings started. Um, but they far from finished all their investigations and, you know, bringing things to conclusion. I was very impressed with all their answers. Chris Logan, one of the big critics of Tongart. Uh, he's been blowing the whistle on that one for some years, uh, giving us an update then from the Tongart Annual General Meeting. Johan van Lochrenberg joins us now. Uh, you might remember that we've had conversations with Johan over the past little while. He was uh, in the police force. Then he was running the SARS, uh, South African Revenue Services Investigative Unit, you might have read his uh, first book uh, that was uh, written with uh, Adrian Lacay about the SARS rogue unit. His most recent book um, tells us mm, a lot more about what's going on uh, in the whole situation and everything that he had to deal with. And one of the organizations that comes in for a roasting in this book is the Tobacco Institute of South Africa, which was founded... In 1991, Johan, you describe it as the big boys club as far as tobacco is concerned in South Africa. Why was it put together in the first place, given that it's, it's been around for, well, nearly 30 years? Um, <clears throat> Alec, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, um, TISA did come about in, in 1991. There were um, similar iterations of uh, the same concept that preceded the the establishment of of TISA, if I can use the acronym, um, and effectively it was uh, born in noble intentions. It was to represent, protect, and advance the common interests of uh, different um, manufacturers and growers within the Southern African uh, context. So that's how they came about um, 31 years ago. Yes. So BAT, South Africa, which according to your information is about three quarters of the market share in South Africa, uh, Rembrandt, Rothmans, some of those other big brands, Dunhill, Philip Morris, which produces Marlboro and Chesterfields, uh, the Japanese JTISA, which has got Camel and Benson and Hedges, Imperial Tobacco, those with Gulwai and, and Embassy, those are kind of the main drivers. But the new, you criticize them a great deal because they seemed to be according to your information, working together or, or having an undue influence on South African revenue services, and particularly their illicit tobacco task team. In other words, those guys who were supposed to go out there and stop the counterfeiters. Yes, certainly it's, it's, it's been no secret, even uh, from my days when I was still at the South African Revenue Service, that I did criticize elements of TISA um, and practices of TISA, particularly when it came to what you describe as uh, undue influence over 
individuals within state law enforcement uh, agencies and the intelligence services. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's actually quite sad for me that they're shutting down without having addressed that particular aspect. Because, um, I mean, I, I don't just make allegations, I give the evidence. And, you know, some of the letters that I uh, relied upon are TISA letters signed by the chairperson addressed to particular individuals and so forth. I even tried to engage with TISA when I wrote the book, um, but they did not want to speak with me on record. Off record, yes. And uh, I shall honor um, our exchanges, but they were dissatisfactory. Mm. And I think that it, it, it kind of leaves a bad taste, in my view, because the, the entities that they represent uh, are multinationals predominantly and very big companies. Um, and there's a responsibility that comes with, you know, those big companies that I think they, they, they owe the public uh, an explanation, particularly with respect to their relationships with people like uh, Mr. Mike Ticha, who, who was a great protagonist of what went down at the Revenue Service uh, and still is in the current um, sagas that are going on, and Miss Belinda Walter, just as examples. There are, of course, many others, but... Um, I, I would have really expected uh, the people there to, to perhaps just said, look, we, we're shutting down, but as a parting gift to South Africa, um, let us explain what happened. Um, either it was a frolic on their own, and this is what we've discovered, and we've reported this to the relevant authorities, and we expect action to be taken. Or alternatively, you know, this was a part of something bigger and we were misled or we sorry or whatever the case might be. None of that happened. They just, you know, as somebody said to me when, when they notified me of the announcement of the shutting down, winding down, it was uh, spectacularly unspectacular. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good point that you've raised there. Now, you've had this organization with supposedly credible multinationals. Uh, who have an institute? There are many questions that you raise in your book. It's a it's a sector that is fraught with problems, as we know. Even they said themselves, the Tobacco Institute, that South Africa is losing eight billion rand a year in taxes that it should be getting in. And yet, the announcement that came out last week that they're closing down this old boys or the big boys club, as you called it, uh, without any uh, further um, announcement or any further information about A, why they're closing down, uh, or B, uh, what they're going to be, what they have been doing in the past, does leave a lot of unanswered questions. But, Johan, from the public's perspective, uh, tobacco companies haven't exactly got a, a record for transparency or credibility. No, certainly not. But I do think, you know, you're, deal you're dealing with um, a basket of representatives of, of members. So if we, if you look at TISA itself, um, you know, they, they did not only have the, the big, uh, multinational manufacturers as members. They also had smaller entities and, and leaf growers and so on. So in a sense, I do have some, uh, empathy for those entities that were part of TISA, um, sullied by the, 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 the issues that have come out into the public domain but had nothing to do with that. Um, 
to me, the, 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 the most interesting thing is that to date, and the book Tobacco Wars has been out for a couple of months now, to date, uh, none of the big uh, multinationals, nor TISA, has even uh, denied what I've put in my book. Um, and I do think, you know, when it comes to companies like British American Tobacco, um, we look at the, the failure and governance and, and other issues in, in the Steinoff case, for instance, or the, 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 the Tongat Ulet matter. And I think, you know, SAP and McKinsey and Bain and Company and so on, all these multinationals have uh, taken serious knocks because of governance issues and so on. And I do think that we should, as the public, expect a lot more from uh, big companies like British American Tobacco, more so since the fact that our public investment corporation, according to figures that I've been provided, holds something like 30 billion rand in shares in British American Tobacco in South Africa. Now, that's a significant number. Um, so surely, uh, you know, um, they, they, they should be held to a higher um, standard. Yeah, all multinationals generally are coming under pressure now for, for not acting or not behaving uh, in a way that, that uh, they behave in developed countries in the same way in developing countries like ours uh, where it, there's a perception anyway that they're ripping off the system and they transfer pricing and so on. And this kind of approach, I guess, is not going to help. But just, just moving slightly across, what happens now if, if this organization uh, presumably was helping the South African police services in tracking down illicit tobacco? And it's, I think you, you also make the point uh, that smugglers who bring in one container make 10 million rand uh, so it's it's a very very easy uh, easy money if you can get the container through the customs department. What happens now to that kind of monitoring if you take this organisation which says it's been playing such a big role uh, out of the picture? Well, Alec, I mean that's debatable because um, I, I I would really like to see some credible statistics of prosecutions, seizures. Um, syndicates closed down and so forth that resulted directly or indirectly from the assistance by the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. I, I'd like to see that. I have yet to see that. So that's something certainly I would question uh, um, personally. But at the same time, you know, even their statement announcing them shutting down is – Rather contradictory because what they're really saying is we've been a comp we've been a, an association in this sector since 1991 and we've been doing such a great job and we're really working well and we're excellent and everything is just dandy. Um, however, we're shutting down now. You know that's the equivalent of um, a, a shop uh, making a, a huge t a turnover and profit deciding over December to shut down. It just, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And I think the media should uh, certainly pose far more direct questions to them before they completely wind down, because I do think they, they, they owe us some answers. The fact of the matter is that the whole pretext under which the revenue service was decimated 
was a simple thing. It was a it was a lie about a small little unit of investigators um, that did not do what they've been accused of doing. Now, the people who accused them of doing that were people who were directly or indirectly employed by either TISA or uh, members of TISA and so forth and paid in all sorts of uh, sneaky ways and, you know, these relationships were kept secret and so forth. And that whole story was born amongst those people and it was born amongst them precisely because they knew that when we were at the revenue service at the time, we were right on the verge of exposing that and holding people to account. Now, I'm not suggesting here that everybody and all the members and everybody involved in all these companies and TISA are corrupt people and so forth, but if they are not, and this is something that merely happened amongst a handful of bad apples, the least that TISA could could have done for the public in this country is they could have put some effort into understanding what happened and told the public. It's 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 uh, it's very common this kind of approach though that you'll have people in the boardroom say, "Oh my goodness, there's a there's there's a lot of muck here. Uh, let's find a way of sweeping it away under the carpet. Let's let's walk away from this." Uh, and I suppose in this case, the easiest way to do it is to close down uh, the organisation that. That is, is implicated, has to have been implicated in, in certainly the way you describe it. But just to close off with, there is at the Zondo Commission now Tom Moyani, who was, uh, who was the successor uh, at South African Revenue Services as the commissioner and, and under whose watch a lot of the bad stuff seemed to have happened. He's now going to be cross-questioning um, his predecessor and now Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon, uh, that's been allowed by the Zondo Commission. Is there anything that's going to come out of that that, uh, and it's very clear which side of the fence you're on, but is there anything that could come out of that that, that would uh, shock South Africa? I, I wouldn't know, um, Alec, because I haven't, I haven't had contact with... Uh, either Mr. Gordon or Mr. Moyane for many, many years. So um, I just don't know. Um, I think it's a necessary uh, process. I think the concept of um, affording people who stand accused of things uh, a hearing and an opportunity to state their case and to provide evidence, um, that's very important. It did strike me as... um, uh, ironic when I saw the the fight that Mr. Moyane put up to um, be able to cross-examine Mr. Gordon precisely because under his watch, certainly during the Sikakane process, the KPMG process, the Brassi process and the Kruan process, and even at the point when he went and registered his case uh, with the Hawks, and even thereafter when I met with the Hawks and the NPA, I have to this day never ever been afforded an opportunity to hear allegations put to me, nor cross-examine any of those people that made such allegations, if there are such people, or put my side of the story. So on the one end, I think it's very good for the process, but it's fairly ironic, um, ironic too. I think time will have to tell. Jan van Nockrenberg, the author of Tobacco Wars, a, a book that gives you all the insights into what's going on in an area that's costing South Africa, or apparently has cost South Africa 40 billion rand 
in lost taxes since 2010. And uh, it is equally ironic, uh, what Johan was saying, was that when Moyani came in as the Commissioner for Inland Revenue, one of the important decisions that he made was to stop investigating illicit, uh, the illicit tobacco industry and unrecorded manufacturing activity by cigarette makers. Well, make of that what you will. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Kevin James. Kevin James joins us now from Bright Light Solar. Uh, we've been talking to Kevin over the past few weeks about the uh, unusual investment prospect that uh, Bright Light Solar does offer South Africans. And I thought it would be a good idea today, Kevin, just to, just to actually interrogate uh, the statement that you can deliver a return of 21% after tax to those who have now seen your prospectus and have read it and presumably are going to be in investing with you. Just, to, just start at the very beginning. How is it possible for a company, any company, to have that kind of uh, return or deliver that kind of return to investors? Thanks, Alex. So the return is made up of three components. The first one is the Section 12J allowance. Uh, if you remember that is a, uh, a dispensation that National Treasury has granted to investors that if you invest in an approved Section 12J scheme, you get to deduct the full cost of that against your taxable income in the year in which you invest. So what that means is if you are a marginal taxpayer paying 45% tax, you get to deduct uh, 100% of your investment and therefore SARS is effectively contributing 45% of your investment capital. So that forms the first part of the return, which is a 45% um, actual cash back in your hands because it's, it, it's tax that you don't have to pay, uh, which then uh, effectively flows back to you in year zero. Sounds a bit like insurance in that way. But what are these 12J companies, how do you get approved? Oh, it's a, whole, it's a whole process. The first thing is you have to be an approved financial services provider. So you have to be an asset management company. Uh, and that is all regulated by the FSCA. Uh, and then once you have that license, then you have to apply to SARS and you have to get approved by SARS as an approved Section 12J company. So there are lots of hoops to jump through. Lots of hoops. It takes a long time. Uh, you've got to have uh, experience. You've got to be a key individual. Uh, and, and they do interrogate all of that um, as they should from a regulatory point of view. So you get your cash back uh, in year one because of the tax incentive, but where does the other return come from? So the other return comes from what we do with the capital is we then go and invest in fully funded renewable energy projects. What that means is we take the capital that investors invest in Bright Light Solar and we invest it in physical assets in the form of uh, solar PV, solar thermal, and as we mentioned last week, atmospheric water generation plants. And we pay the full capital cost of that for the customer. And then what we do is we sell them the electricity, the hot water, or this filtered drinking water uh, via power purchase agreements, via long-term contracts where they agree to buy that power, hot water, or filtered drinking water over the long term from us. And that is at rates that are at discounts to what they're currently paying to their existing utilities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that kind of sorts it out, but how secure is the investment? 
Well, the, the investment is very secure from the point of view, number one, the cash flows to a custodian. We don't get to access the cash. Uh, we have an independent custodian. They are called Gale, uh, and th- they are also regulated by the FSCA, and they uh, control all the cash that investors have deposited. The way we get the money out is we have to have an approved investment committee minute signed by the the chairman, who is an independent non-executive director, and he then approves the release of cash, which then flows from Gale to our underlying qualifying company. So there are lots of of hoops that we have to jump through. There are lots of safeguards for investors. So when does the investment or the prospectus, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, when does that close off? In other words, when is the final deadline to participate? Yes, if, if I can just finish off the previous discussion is that the third part of that 21% after-tax return comes in the form of when an investor wishes to exit, we will buy their, their shares back from them from year six onwards. They don't have to exit. Uh, we recommend that they stay invested for the long term. But for anyone that wants to exit, we will provide that liquidity to them. And the three, those three areas combined, the 12-day allowance, the, the semi-annual dividends from year one, and the value of uh, selling their shares in year six combine into a 21% return. Okay, so the third one was the one I was, I was missing, but you, you, you have an effective return. Is that after tax? That is an after tax, after fees, and after dividends withholding tax as well. Okay, well, it's irresistible, but how long, does it, uh, how long have you got to get the money together and, uh, and make the investment? So our, invest, uh, our, our prospectus closes on the 25th of February and an investor would need to complete all their application documents, send us all their FICA documents and make the deposit into the bank account by 5 o'clock on the 25th of February. It then closes. We will then uh, submit all of that information to our cash custodian and administrator and we'll then get them IT3Bs back by the 28th of February to facilitate them claiming that tax deduction immediately in the current tax year. How big a process is that, Kevin? Uh, it's a bit of a process, but we are working with professionals who've done this for a long time. Uh, obviously, they've got to pull out all the stops to, to deliver it, but they've given us an undertaking that they'll do so. Mm. All right, so it closes on the 20th of February. Uh, what I'm trying to get in my mind now is if I want to participate, how long is it going to take me to put it together? I don't want to wake up on the 25th of February and say, my goodness, I, I, I can't get everything together in one day. So that's quite a, quite a quick process, Alec. Obviously, it depends. The most important thing is to read the prospectus and to understand what it is you're investing in. Uh, so people shouldn't look at this just as a tax break and a way of avoiding tax. Uh, you are investing in a company and you need to understand what it is that we do and what the risks around that are. So that really depends on the investor and how long they want to spend in in understanding that. In terms of the documentation, it's relatively simple. It's completing an application form and it's giving us their FICA documents and we we, we provide guidance uh, through that process, which is quite easy. And then it's obviously making sure that the money hits the bank account by the 25th of Feb. And the minimum investment? The minimum is 100,000. The maximum is uh, the maximum deduction that an investor can claim in the current tax year is two and a half million rand for an individual or a trust, and five million rand for a company. Just that, that hundred thousand rand. Um, I don't know if you've done the calculations, but how much? Uh, what kind of money must you be earning uh, 
so that you can then invest the 100,000 rand to take care of your, your tax bill for this year. At, what I'm getting at there is how much PAYE uh, or how much do you have to earn to be paying PAYE of 100,000 rand? So this is really free cash flow that an investor needs to have available. Um, so it's typically more than what you would be earning. It's, it's investment capital. Um, but no, I haven't done the numbers in terms of, of what that is. And please bear in mind as well is that the forecast returns that we are projecting assume that an investor is paying a 45% tax rate. In other words, that marginal rate only kicks in for earnings over one and a half million rand a year. So if you're earning, I'm just uh, for argument's sake, 35,000 rand a month and you're paying your PAYE every month, if you've got capital saved on the side, you can then take, and let's just, I, I don't know if the numbers are right, but let's just use this as an example. You've paid 100,000 rand of your uh, 400,000 rand that you've earned this year, you've paid that in PAYE. If you then make an investment of 100,000 rand, can you, in your tax return, write that back this year and say, um, I want to reduce the amount of tax that I'm paying by this 100,000 rand because, uh, because of this investment? Yes, that is exactly correct. Uh, the only thing is that the taxable income then is calculated on 300,000 rand because you earn 400,000 uh, which is taxable income, you then deduct the 100000 that you've invested in the 12J, and then it is calculated on the 300000 So the benefit there is that you'll drop probably into a lower tax bracket, um, and you'll then also save, and you'll get a refund on some of that PAYE that you have paid. So you won't in get it all to, back. Yeah, but you won't get, get it all back. Get, you'll get a chunk of it. Be, because you'll need to reduce your taxable income below the threshold. So it's a deduction of taxable income, not a, a deduction of tax. And how long do you have to have the money tied up for to take advantage of this? So Section 12J does set out that requirement is that an investor needs to stay invested for at least five years. Uh, so you, you're looking at 61 months is, is your first opportunity to exit without having a recoupment on your 12J allowance. I think it's uh, pretty clear now what exactly the opportunity is. Obviously, if you're a very high income earner, then it makes the most sense of all. Uh, but even for people who are earning um, thirty to 40,000 rand a month, there is an opportunity here if you've got cash available on the side. I'm going to do some numbers on, the, um, on, on whether it, it makes sense to take the money out of your access bond and make that investment into this uh, because with the kind of returns that – that uh, the 12J allowance and the, uh, the special benefits from the renewables uh, give you, it might well make a lot of sense. But we'll talk to Kevin about that next week. Coming up now is the whole story of ESG. If you're bored by ESG, don't be, because it is changing the investment landscape and it's something that we all need to take very, very close account of. The last interview for this week's program is with Rudolf Duplessis, who's a partner at Herbert Smith Freehills, a, well, one of the many international legal firms who, who came into South Africa in the past decade or so. Uh, Rudolf, it's interesting to see the size of the business that, uh, that you guys are associated with, um, 27 offices around the world, two in London, two, in, or two or more actually in Australia, Moscow, Shanghai, Hong Kong, etc. So a big global firm, 
and a, a global firm that does a lot of investigation into various things and has just brought out a report called M&A in 2020, the new normal. Now, M&A meaning mergers and acquisitions. How big a part of your business is this? Look, our, we're a big corporate law firm, so we do um, mainly in our corporate department M&A work. So that's obviously a big part of our work. Uh, and our M&A spans all of our offices, so the M&A work that we do is um, obviously from the Johannesburg office in Africa, uh, but for the rest of the office we do large M&A transactions all over the world. And the really interesting part of this report is the way that ESG, or Environment, Social and Governance Issues, something that's been coming more and more into the spotlight, how it's now impacting acquisitions, uh, mergers, and these big transactions. In I know there's a lot in the report on this, but just in a nutshell, how does it do that? If, if for instance, I'm going out to buy another company and they've got an awful ESG record, does it mean that nowadays I can actually pay a discount? Uh, look, I think the way we see it in the M&A space um, is that it, because of the increased awareness of things like climate change and, and all the pressure that comes from activists, consumers, investors, I think that it has pushed the ESG issues um, very high up uh, on the agenda. And that's not only so in respect of companies and their operations, but also, uh, as you say, in regard to M&A. Uh, and I think the funny thing that we have seen over the last couple of years is that it it's important not only for the buyers, but also important for the sellers. So from the buyer's point of view, um, you can no longer just ask the question and say, um, as a side issue, uh, you know, what, what is the social impact that you have or your operations? What's the social impact of your operations? It's something that you have to have as, a, as a, an integral part of your due diligence when you look at what it is that you're buying. And, and the reason for that is that it's obviously um, it can have an impact on the buyer's own reputation. So I think it's, it's something that you can no longer just look at as a side issue and ask a few questions and say, on the basis of this, I want to pay a bit less for the company because you don't have your house in order. Um, because of the reputational risk and the emphasis that everyone uh, that's invested in the company place on that, I think that it is something that you, you know, that you have to look at very carefully and investigate to make sure that once you take over this company that you're able to deal with these issues because it's going to become your issues uh, in the future. But I think what's important is that it's not only the buyers but also sellers. Sellers are increasingly looking at what they're disposing of. Um, in the past, I think people just said, I want to get out, and once I'm out, I forget about this business. I don't think that in today's world it's possible to do that anymore, um, and people talk about um, a clean and a responsible exit. In other words, it's no longer just that you want to get out and, and, and not hear anything about the company, but that your exit must be responsible, and, and for example, buyers are increasingly asking questions about how the company that I'm selling will be operated in the future because it also has reputational risk, um, you know, not only for the buyer, but also for the seller. So I think from that point of view, in an M&A context, uh, it is becoming more and more important for people to look at it not only in the due diligence, but more importantly, once you've taken over the company, both from the buyer's and the seller's point of view, what, what's going to happen with this company and will, it be, uh, will its operations be conducted um, responsibly? But Rudolph, in the real world, and I have personal experience of this uh, going back some time, in the real world, when guys are wanting to sell their business, they have already taken the decision that they want out. And quite often, 
they're pretty poor at things at, at the ESG side. Uh, and I suppose that's part of the reason why they want to sell because they haven't made a success of their business. And successful businesses today need to have this house in order. How do you approach these guys if you're the buyer? Look, I think, again, what we see in practice is that, you know, if you look at traditional investing, um, traditional investing, you know, there was a sole emphasis on financial return, and that was the primary driver, is to achieve a financial return. Um, and if you contrast that to philanthropy, you know, where you are giving something to someone for um, the societal um, return that you get or the, the, the primary driver in philanthropy is obviously to, to, to deliver a social return. I think more and more we are seeing that somewhere in the middle people are saying, well, actually, investment nowadays is no longer um, simply something where you target uh, the investment a, you know, at, at aims of getting a financial return. And they're now dual drivers, and those dual drivers are social and financial returns. Um, so increasingly, people are behaving more responsibly in that, and that makes it easier to have that kind of discussion with both the seller and the buyer. As you say, when you're selling, and it depends on who the seller is, you know, if the seller is a big corporate, it might be different from a private equity seller that is looking to get out cleanly and quickly. Uh, but I do think that because of the reputational harm that this has um, for the person selling, if it is a big mess, I do think that that is becoming um, more, there's more of an emphasis on both sides. And it's easier to have those discussions with people because people are accepting that there is massive risk if they don't um, deal with not only running the business responsibly, but also disposing of the business responsibly. Yeah, in the old days, if you were buying a mine, for instance, you had to make pretty sure that uh, they had the the money set aside for rehabilitation of the mine that uh, that they had uh, supposedly or, or reserves sufficient reserves for it. We know the Guptas played around with that those reserves quite nicely in a number of their uh, deals. But this seems to go a lot further than that, a lot further than just the make sure that they've that that whoever it is that you're buying from has got. The, the, the sufficient reserves to fix what they might have broken? You know, I think increasingly governments are also looking at those kinds of issues and saying we need to put in place um, regulatory measures to make sure that, that people you know, don't just get out of the business and then forget about all of that, what they've done wrong. So the mining industry is a good example. That has been for many years, there's been rehabilitation obligations and those rehabilitation obligations to an extent, um, you know, will be on the people who operated the mine, even if, if that's an operation yeah, that they're no longer involved in. And I do think that if you look at what is going on, um, it is important that that companies look at that and governments are looking more and more at that. I read this morning in, in a newspaper um, that there was uh, an instance in France where um, there's a law now called the duty of vigilance. And basically what that says is that large, large companies must set out clear measures on, as to how they're going to prevent human rights violations or environmental damage resulting from their activities. And that's an actual law that, that's been um, adopted in France, mainly through municipal uh, regulations. And I think that that will get companies to think about those things going in the future. In other words, it's no longer possible, in my view, and, and the Guptas is probably a good example as well, just to get out and say, well, things may have gone wrong, but I'm out of it, so it's no longer relevant. I think 
Um, if you look at these kinds of examples over the last couple of years, it has a, a massive impact on your business if you do something wrong um, and inevitably can lead to, you know, to the company going under. It's really good news because you've got to keep your nose clean continuously. But from a global perspective, how far behind the curve is South Africa? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, if you look at measures in King 4, for example, um, or if you look at, at our Companies Act and what our Companies Act requires the Social and Ethics Committee to do, I don't think that in theory we are that far behind other countries. I think in practice, you know, whether or not in practice that, um, you know, we, we adopt all of these things that, that's in the law, that's a good question. So, for example, um, King 4 very clearly um, makes it, you know, very clearly says that it is intended to be a stakeholder inclusive approach as opposed to a, a, a shareholder-centric approach. So, you know, obviously there is clear reference in King 4 that you no longer look just at the shareholders and at the company, but that you look at stakeholders and stakeholders can be as broad as, as the environment. Our Companies Act um, also, when it talks about the functions of the Social and Ethics Committee, I think actually uh, goes quite far in what it is that that at least the Social and Ethics Committee must investigate, must look at, um, and must then report back to both the board and the shareholders as to what is being done. So I do think that we do have the measures in place where people are looking at that, but I, but I think um, you know, South Africa is still, from, from that point of view, um, there's still a way to go. Um, if you look at something like shareholder activism, for example, it is certainly something that is becoming more and more important in South Africa, but if I look um, at the shareholder activism that we come across in our global network, um, certainly there's a big emphasis on those kinds of things in Europe and in the UK, uh, and, and there's quite a bit, I think, for South Africa still to go to, to get those kinds of things. But I don't think that, that we're that far behind, and, and certainly there are, um, I think, very progressive measures on our, uh, in, in our legislation that means that we, you know, that we certainly are thinking about those things. Rudolf Duplessis is a partner at Herbert Smith. Free hills, and uh, that is the future. This is the future. If you are looking to buy into a company because you think that uh, it's a takeover target, make sure that it's got its ESG right. And if you're a director of a company and you haven't been paying attention to those issues, it's all in King 4. South Africa, in fact, started the whole um, route or the whole road on this in, in this direction. King 1 came out, would you believe, in 1994, and now we're in the fourth iteration of these governance principles. But unfortunately, too many people are still just paying lip service to it, no longer able to pay lip service. We see in Davos that it's front and center, mainstream, as uh, Herbert Smith Freehill's report talks about this issue of environment, social, and governance. And it, it's real money that's being impact, impacted now. And as an investor, it's one of those things that when you, before you decide to become a co-owner of the company, because that's what you do when you buy shares, you need to be paying attention to what that company is doing on this increasingly important measure. Well, that's, uh, that's our show for today. I'm glad you were able to join us and uh, hope you enjoyed the d um, different perspectives that we managed to bring across today. Remember, uh, we live stream the um, 
rational, well, the Rational Radio Show every Monday between noon and one o'clock. And of course, the podcasts are cut and available for your pleasure. You can subscribe to them through Spotify or through iTunes, or indeed just pick them up from the um, widget that's on the Biz News site. Thanks for being with us. Till the next time, from Alec Hogg. Cheerio.